Hey everybody, wherever and whenever you are watching this, it's great to have you join us. We're gonna spend some time today in part two of our three-part series called Things That Make You Go Mmm, mm. Mysterious Messages from the Messiah's Missives. And today it's insightful imagery. So what are we gonna talk about today, Rich? Yeah, so we are going to talk firstly about how we interpret imagery in the Bible. The Bible is full of rich imagery and the book of Revelation is packed with imagery. So we're gonna talk a little bit about how we can interpret that well. Yeah, and then we're gonna dive into Revelation 1 and hopefully give some teaching on how to interpret the imagery that we see of Jesus in Revelation 1. We're gonna have some opportunities to pause uh, after that to think about which part of Jesus' revelation most impacts us. And then we're gonna spend a bit of time in Revelation 2 and 3 in the letters looking at some other interesting imagery and what we can understand from that. And then we'll have a final talking point about spiritual matters and whether we're really as aware of those things in the life of the church and as believers as we should be. Sounds great. Yeah, Let's so we hope it. you enjoy the video. Well, hello and welcome to another midweek message. Yeah. I'm here with Will and we are continuing in our series of things that make you go, mm. which are the mysterious messages, messages from the Messiah's Misses. There you go. So we did riches and rewards last time, and today we're going to pick up insightful imagery. And uh, we're focusing on the red letter days, hence the red background, and we're going to be spending most of our time in Revelation 1, 2, and 3. So if you want to get that open in your Bibles, ready to go, then that would be great. And uh, we're going to talk about the imagery, and of course the book of Revelation, well, much of the Bible is full of imagery. Pictures, um, time frames, numbers, all of these things that represent something and the book of Revelation probably more than any is full, full of, of symbolism uh, and rich symbolism and so there are numbers, images, names, ideas uh, that actually can be a little bit confusing and maybe even put us off reading it because we're not quite sure what it is that we're reading and uh, the, the prophet John, well John brings the book of Revelation as a prophecy and therefore we can expect it to be quite poetic and um, rich with imagery. Um, you think of Daniel's visions that he has in the yep. book of Daniel. He sees all sorts of different beasts and monsters yep. and goats and rams and lions and bears, but no tigers, oh my. And all of these different things, they represent empires and kingdoms and yep. rulers. Um, and so they're not to be taken literally, but they are to be understood. And so just going to give a few little helpful tips. That'd be great. About how we firstly deal with images and symbolism yep. in the Bible. Go for it, Rich. And so the first thing I'd like to say, particularly about the book of Revelation, is the best book to interpret the Bible is the Bible, Bible. itself. Bible. Not Time Magazine, not the newspapers, not CNN, not any conspiracy things, not QAnon, none of that stuff, okay? The best thing to interpret the Bible and the book of Revelation is the Bible itself. And if we want to understand what something means and what it represents, then it's really helpful to go back and look at what the Bible has to say in other yep. stories. And there are books like Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, mentioned Daniel, the book of Zechariah, the book of Judges. All of those things have a lot of images and stories that are picked up in the visions that John sees in the book of Revelation. And John sees an unfolding of something that happens in heaven and then that being outworked on the earth and these sort of stories. And sometimes we see uh, locusts, we see water changing to blood, we see pictures of, of exoduses, we see monsters and beasts and serpents and trees and all of those things. And they're all there in our Old Testament. Yeah. Riders on, on horses, we see that in Zechariah. And so we can understand what those things mean based on what the Bible already has to say about it. 
Second thing is that images have general interpretations, but then also can be used to describe positive or negative things. So the same image can be a positive thing in one part of our Bibles and a negative thing in the other. So think about yeast. What do we know about yeast? Helps us make bread. <laughs> makes bread, it permeates. Yeah, it's small, well. it permeates. So Jesus says, beware the yeast of the Pharisees and the disciples think Jesus is talking about bread. Yeah. But actually, so, you know, they're, they're teaching, they're influence. But then he also, in, Proverbs, in, in the parable in Matthew 13, talks about the yeast of the kingdom. Um, influencing society, influencing the world. And so something that's negative, the yeast of the Pharisees is positive mm. yeah. when we talk about the kingdom of God and yeast or the lion. Mm. James says that Satan is like a, a lion who's prowling around looking for someone to de devour. But we also know that Jesus is the lion of the tribe yeah. of Judah. Yeah. Um, even in uh, when Will referred to the bright morning star yeah. or the morning star, yeah. that's satanic reference in Isaiah, but it's also a reference to Jesus in the new one. Yeah. And, and we can see that you know, there are, there are things about these that are similar, but also why they're very different as well. You know, that, that Satan's glory might have been glorious for a time, but fizzles away, but Jesus' glory will continue mm. forever because he's the bright morning star. So use the Bible to interpret the Bible. Recognize that there are themes for images, but sometimes they're positive, sometimes they're negative. Don't always think they're the same thing. And the next thing is it's always helpful to look at the original language and the context in which things yeah. are written. And we can learn a lot about... Um, and when, when Roger shared about Laodicea and talking about what Laodicea was famous for, you yeah. know, with um, banking textiles and, and medicine, yeah. particularly for the ice, and then yeah. the, the language that Jesus uses to talk to yeah. them helps us to understand what the point that Jesus is making. Yeah. Um, and also to say there are great resources out there. Um, Study Light, Bible Gateway, to name a few online. You can go and look at what different verses mean. You can look at what words mean when you go and look in more detail at the Latin, or, um, sorry, the Greek or the Hebrew. And also different translations help us with that as well. We're really happy to help with that sort of thing as well, aren't we? If anyone yeah. wants to come and chat to us and we can point people in the right direction and absolutely. try and help hopefully as well. Yeah, absolutely. So those things are really helpful. And then the last thing is just to say as well that the Holy Spirit helps us. Mm. Um, if we want to understand what things mean, pray, ask the Holy Spirit and the body of Christ, the bride of Christ this year also to help us. There's thousands of years of church history and learning and understanding that helps us to really get a grasp of what these things mean. So just wanted to kind of share those things. We picked up rewards and riches. We did. Today we're looking at, looking at imagery mm. and focusing on the letters. But firstly, well, you're going to pick up something in Revelation 1 that we should look yeah, at. Yeah, because before John writes anything to the church in terms of instruction or direction, Jesus gives him a, an image of himself. Mm. And that's actually the first thing that's recorded that he is to, to send to the church, if you like. So if you open your Bibles to Revelation 1, and we're going to read from, from verse 9 in Revelation 1. And just go through uh, that image of Jesus that's described there and using some of the things Rich has talked about, try to unpack a little bit of yeah. what that actually means for us. What are we actually seeing of Jesus? Um, Jesus is described in so many different ways and describes himself in lots of different ways as uh, the word, the way, the truth, the life, uh, the, the son of God, the lamb, the line of Judah, the vine, that all of these, <laughs> so many um, images, so much rich imagery. Yeah. But he doesn't use any of that to describe himself in what we see in Revelation 1. So I think it's quite interesting that we, we look at how Jesus describes himself to John, uh, coupled with the fact that he says, John, this is what you are to communicate to the churches about who I am. Yeah. Because everything that comes after this, all of the, the things that you're going through, the ways that I want to help you and mold you, 
all of that comes in the context of this is who I am in my all sufficiency. This is who I am, who I want you to see. And this is really going to help you with all that I want to encourage you in and challenge you in going forwards. So yeah. that's what we see from Jesus from Revelation 1 and verse 9. So let's just start reading there, shall we? And I'll just pause and pick up some bits as we go through. So it says there, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation kingdom and perseverance in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of God's word and the testimony about Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write on a scroll what you've seen and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. Mm. These are the, the people that we were talking about last time and we've been looking at them on a Sunday morning. But just before he lists those churches, he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard beh behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. I was a bit intrigued by this. That yeah. why, is, why does Jesus appear behind mm. John mm -hmm. to start with? And um, it's interesting that the, the subheading to this uh, portion of scripture is John's vision of the risen Lord. When you go back into John, the gospel of John, chapter 20, you find a similar subheading and it says, Mary Magdalene sees the risen Lord. Mm. And in a very similar way, Mary Magdalene is, is standing and facing something and she hears from behind her or she turns around to see Jesus. The same word in the original language that's used to, to talk about turning to see Jesus behind is the same word that's used in John 20 to say that she turned uh, around and saw Jesus. Yeah. And you get this sense that um, the, the context for, for Mary is that she's facing the empty tomb of Jesus. She thinks Jesus is dead and gone and all the, that, all the hope that came with who he was has dissipated and she's upset and she's disappointed and that's what she's facing. But she turns around to mm. see Jesus. We understand turning around in, in a kind of a repentant sort of way and yeah. a turning from something to something. There's definitely a significance in turning to see something. And when that something is Jesus then it's, uh, it's really uh, important for us that we turn to see Jesus because what he's going to show us is something that's going to impact us going yes, forward for the yeah. rest of our life. And that's what Mary sees of the risen Lord. And then when we turn to Revelation 1 and the verse we just read there, that behind me was a loud voice like a trumpet. What, what John is seeing now is he's facing exile on Patmos. He's uh, facing all of um, what he will discover in a second, all of the weight of the seven churches, all that they're going through. And he's facing all of that. But Jesus says, turn around and see me. Turn mm. around and see who I am, my all sufficiency in this context. So he turns around and he sees, well, what he sees is something that he hears, actually. It's a loud trumpet blast. Yes. Now, in Ezekiel uh, chapter 3 and chapter 33, when he gets um, the kind of commission of his prophetic ministry, it's described as a ministry like a watchman. And a watchman was one that was uh, to stand on the castle walls and keep an eye out for any enemy that was coming so that they could sound the trumpet blast. And so there's this uh, prophetic dimension of a, a clarity of the voice of, of God that comes to warn, to, to, um, to give guidance and to alert us to what's going mm. on and what needs to happen. And so just as it was with Ezekiel that he was to sound the trumpet of the prophetic word. And then also you read 
in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he says, if the trumpet blast is indistinct, mm. how, how do people know? He's talking about prophetic ministry yeah, in that right. context. And he says, how will people know what to do if the, if the sound is not clear? But there's this, this link between the sounding of the trumpet, the prophetic voice of God, and obviously here we're turning around to see Jesus. And what do we see first of all? It's the voice of God, this prophetic, mm. dynamic voice that John sees. Even in Numbers, there's the silver trumpets that are blasted when God is about to yeah. move or calling them together. It was the voice of yeah. God again being represented, wasn't it? Yeah, through you the see trumpet the blast. thread all through Absolutely. scripture. Yeah, it's great. Absolutely. So he hears the loud voice like a trumpet saying, write on a scroll as, as we read to these seven churches. And then in verse 12, it says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven gold lampstands and among the lampstands was one like the son of man. Mm. Seven, um, I don't know if you'll go into this, Rich, but, but seven is a number that represents completeness and yeah. wholeness. wholeness um, yeah. It was written to seven churches, literally, but we also understand that to mean um, the whole church. It's written to us today. It's written mm -hmm. to the completeness of the church. And he's among the lampstands in the midst of the church. And what he, what um, John sees there is one like the Son of Man. Yes. Uh, this description of Jesus is one that um, actually Jesus most often refers to himself. His favourite way to describe as the Son himself. of Man. Yeah. No one else really calls him that, but he himself mm. refers to himself as the Son of Man. Yeah. Which is the phrase that he's picked up from. Uh, the prophetic dream that you mentioned earlier, Rich, that Daniel has in Daniel chapter 7. Mm. And he sees all these beasts, these, these kingdoms, these rulers rising up. And then it says that there was one like the Son of Man that came and approached the Ancient of Days. Yeah. And there was, that harks back to the fact that in, in Genesis, it was the beast that deceived humanity. It was the serpent that came and deceived humanity. And since then, there was this beastly nature of, of humankind and there was always this need for one like a human to mm. overcome the, the human nature, to overcome sin, one like the Son of Man. Yeah. And time and time again, people rise up, but they don't actually quite fit the they job description. Yeah. And what, really, one needs to come and lay down his life, which is exactly what Jesus did. And so, Second Adam. The, the, sec, the, yeah. the Son of Man, the second Adam. So when he comes and describes himself as the Son of Man, mm. um, people twig this. And oh, this is the one we've been waiting for. Yeah. This is the Son of Man, the one that's going that's to like. overcome uh, all these things that need to be overcome and pave a way for us to be just like him. Yeah. So one like the Son of Man, it, that's why he describes himself in that way. And then you go on in verse 13 of Revelation 1, and it says he's dressed in a long robe with a gold sash wrapped around his chest. He's describing his priestly garments. Yes. Again, all through scripture, you see this, the, the thread of the priestly garments. And particularly in Exodus chapter 39, there's a great description of the robe and the sash, the belt um, of, of the priests. In the priestly garments, though, there was only actually a thread of gold that ran through this sash. Whereas now that we see Jesus, it's mm. a golden, it's this golden um, sash wrapped around his chest. It's uh, that word actually means gold, not just gold coloured, but it's Solid like a gold. golden, a golden <laughs> sash around his chest. Yeah, and this long robe, which as as we've been uh, kind of enjoying the truth of recently is the robe that fills the, temple. the temple. It's the yeah. robe that's full of wholeness and healing that's available to all. It's it's just. This, the magnitude of what he's describing about who he is is incomprehensible, really, yeah. but, it's, but it's awesome. And that, that priestly role of Jesus there, I, I really enjoy that he describes himself in that way because it means that in the midst of the lampstands, not only does he appeal to the Father for us as mm -hmm. our mediator, 
But actually one of the jobs of the priests was to tend to the lampstands, to make sure there was enough oil, right. to make sure the wicks were trimmed, to make sure everything was as it should be. And so he's there in the midst of us, tending to us, yes. caring for building us as church. a priest, yeah. building his church. Yeah but also kind of attending for us to the Father at the same mm. time. So it's such a rich, it's an insightful image. It's a really rich <laughs> image. He's a great high priest, isn't he? He's Jesus amazing. is. Yeah, fantastic. So he's got the robe, he's got the sash around his chest, and then in verse 14 it says, his head and hair were white like wool, white as snow. Mm. And I, uh, I think that, that this whiteness uh, of wool and of snow it speaks to me of his purity yes. and also of his antiquity, of his eternal nature, his pre-existence and his never-ending nature. Yeah. And you read it in Psalm 51, verse 7, it says, Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Mm. So you understand the whiteness of snow to be this, this purity, this cleanness. Isaiah 1, verse 18 says, Come, let us discuss this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they will be white like wool. Yeah. So these two images of snow and wool representing uh, purity and cleanliness. In that vision in Daniel 7 as well, the Ancient of Days has hair yeah. that's white like purest wool. It's yeah. like his father. You just know. like his yeah, father. Exactly. That, that's, that description of him, just like God the Father, it's, to me speaks of his pre-existing, his eternalness, mm. the, the antiquity and the purity coming together in yeah, that brilliant. image of, of whiteness. Hmm. It goes on in that same verse, verse um, 14, to say that his eyes were like a fiery flame. Mm. Fire often through the word of God speaks of judgment, of refining, and again of purity. Yeah. And to see that in the eyes of, of Jesus, it, uh, it just shows us that, that he sees everything. Yeah. That he sees with eyes that penetrate right to the, to the very depth of what is going on in us and in, in our society. And all of those things, it, it, again, his kind of... Um, his omnipotence, his omniscience, to use a couple of big words, but his all-powerfulness and his all-knowingness yeah. is, for me, what we see in those eyes, that, that he's, he's there in the, in the midst of the church, in, exalted in heaven, and his eyes are like fire. Sees, perceives everything. There's a great perspective to come from, isn't it? Justly, absolutely. Not only does he have eyes like a fiery flame, but when we come into verse 15, it says his, his feet were like fine bronze fired in a furnace. Tony Ling has really helped me to under, understand this. And um, I'm just gonna read actually what, what he said about it because I think it's so brilliant. Um, but in Tony's book, The Lion and the Lamb, he references how when Moses is describing the journey of the Israelites out of Egypt, and when Solomon is dedicating the temple, and when Jeremiah is prophesying and confronting the people of God, mm. in all of those contexts, um, Egypt is described as like a, 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 an iron smelting furnace, yeah, like yeah. a fiery furnace. That's right. And Tony says, um, Egypt has been an iron smelting furnace. Babylon had been a furnace of affliction. But when John sees Jesus and describes him from his snowy woolly head all the way down to his feet, he notices this. His feet are like bronze that's been caused to glow in a furnace. This is because he has been there. He's been mm. down to the iron smelting furnace of Egypt. He's stood in the midst of his people and he had taken the heat himself and he'd led them out of their bondage on two great fiery feet. At night you could see the fire and in the day it looked like a cloud. But the two great legs of Jesus marched out before his people and brought them into deliverance. Yeah, great. We understand that Jesus is in the fire with us and has gone ahead of us with his feet of burnished bronze because he has a purpose and a destiny for us. If we can see and be caught with that vision, 
then when persecution and trial and setback comes, those things are not stumbling blocks by which you fall, but mm. stepping stones by which you make progress. Very good. I can see where you read that. Yeah, that's good, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I think that's why we um, consider it pure joy when we face trials of any kind, because it produces perseverance and it, and it helps us to finish our work and become mature and complete. They're not um, stumbling blocks any longer, but stepping stones, because the fiery, uh, burnished feet of Jesus have gone mm -hmm. ahead to pave the way, and there's a, a destiny and a purpose for us, yes. and we can persevere through. Very good. So he's got these feet, like burnished bronze, um, fired in a furnace, and then his mouth is like the sound of cascading waters, <laughs> the sound of roaring waters it sometimes describes. And in Revelation 14 and 19, this same phrase is used again. And in both contexts, it's uh, within uh, the setting of worship around the throne of Jesus. It's, um, so when we, when we then see that this is about, it may be about other things as well. Yeah, but, it often represents humanity in the yeah, world, yeah. But in the context of this is um, to do with worship around the throne of Jesus, when we see that that's how Jesus' voice is described, it, it, um, it sheds some light on other verses that we read about God singing over us or Jesus mm. singing over us. Um, I'm not going to dive into them now, but if you look at Zephaniah 3, 17, and Hebrews 2, 11 to 12, in, in your own time, then you'll see that God and Jesus both sing over us. Mm. And to hear that his voice is like the sound of cascading waters here in Revelation 1, to me speaks the fact that Jesus, with his prophetic voice, sings and thanks God for what he started in us, what he's going to complete in us. And in, in the midst of his church, seeing all that's going on, he's praising God for us and about us and, and with us mm. in that community. Mm. So I like that. Um, and then just to, to finish off, there are a couple more things in here that says, um, in his right hand, verse 16, he had seven stars mm. and from his mouth came a two-edged sword and his face was like the sun at midday. And these final three things. Image overload, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's huge. But Revelation 1 itself actually helps us because it tells us that those seven stars are the angels or the messengers to the churches. Yes. And so whilst he's in the midst of the churches of the lampstands, he's holding the messengers. He's, he's got his people in his hand. His hand, which is described as his right hand, mm. which is the hand of blessing, of authority, of recognition. Yeah. Again, that's a thread that runs through the word. And we, we were just talking earlier that when... Joseph wants to bless his children. He switches his hands he over. Gives Jacob to bless his and, two sons. Yeah, he? and it's his Ephraim his and right hand of blessing that that swaps over and it, and blesses the wrong person. But it's that that right hand of blessing. You yes. see that thread run through Scripture, right. and it's that right hand with which he upholds the messengers to the churches. And when you read a little bit further on in Revelation 1, it's that same hand that he uses to comfort John because John's getting really mm. quite distressed by all this imagery. And he says, don't be afraid. And it's the, the, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, that puts the right hand to comfort us as well. So this hand of amazing authority and weight also is the one that comforts us, that, that is with us, just as he's in the midst of, of his church. And in Exodus, God talks about leading them out by his mighty hand, yeah. you know, his outstretched arm. And yeah. as Moses holds his staff, it's the hand of God yeah. that's going out in power and bringing down the enemy. So yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So he's got this, this right hand that, that holds the, the messengers to the churches. Uh, and then he's got the, the sword 
the two-edged sword in his mouth, which represents the word of God, the, the gospel, and the sword that comes to the world with the, the truth and the directness of the gospel, and that comes to his church. In mm -hmm. Revelation 2 and 3, we read that, that yeah. he's, he's writing to believers, but he's saying, I've got the sharp sword in my mouth, and it's the word that, that confronts us, that brings us into line, that cuts deep. You know, when somebody's yes. word really cuts to your heart, that it keeps us on track, and, and that's the, the word of God that's in his mouth. And then his face that was shining like the sun at midday, mm. the, the all-sufficiency, the righteousness, the glory of who he is. In Revelation 22, you read that there's no longer any need for the sun or for, right. for any kind of um, the light because the <laughs> Jesus, the sun, is all-sufficient. He's all we need. He provides us with everything that we need. So, Matthew 17, the transfiguration. His, of course, yeah face shone like the sun yeah. yeah so again it's this picture of his yeah. glory and his majesty and his beauty and the light of the world and i just think unfiltered <laughs> there's there's those few verses there's just so much and if you just read that on face value and think oh what's what's that about let's flick on to the next chapter you miss so much about who totally. jesus is yeah. and why he's saying it he's just about to give instruction to the churches and but first of all he's saying look at who i am yeah i've got all that you need i will help you i'm here for you i love you so dearly and i'm all sufficient for you yeah brilliant so Thanks, Revelation well. 1. I mean, so this might be a good opportunity to press pause um, with this question, really, to, to go back through those verses that Will has just read. So Revelation 1, verses 9 through to 20. And if you're by yourself, maybe make some notes, or if you're with your life group at the moment, why not chat about those different aspects of Jesus' appearance, and maybe one in particular that most strikes you, uh, that most impacts you, that you feel is most helpful for you or most challenging for you at this this time and and why so um if you're taking notes you're watching this by yourself maybe just press pause and do that or if you're in a group press pause and then once you've done that for maybe however long it takes um we've probably got about another 10 or 15 minutes worth to to talk about here then um, press play again and you'll rejoin us And if you didn't, thanks for sticking around. <laughs> but you know that there's this response from John, who's the guy that you know has had his head on Jesus' chest as they yeah. reclined at the table at the Last Supper, who's now face down yeah. as if dead. You know, similar to Daniel in the vision that he has in mm. Daniel 10. There's actually a lot of parallels between yeah. the vision that Daniel has and the vision that John has. The same response; they both fall down dead, and the same. Um, reaching out by the, the the man in the vision to strengthen them and yeah. to bring them peace and just that we can be captivated by Jesus and understand yeah. as well as done you know all of the different things the attributes of, of our risen savior and what he means yeah. to us and awesome. how that helps us and I'm going to just carry on a little bit more now into the, uh, chapters two and three and just pick up some more images and some of the things that we picked up in rewards and riches that are imagery we we, we kind of covered off then so if you've not watched that maybe go back and and check that out. But we're going to do some things that we didn't pick up in um, in the first session. So, and, and Will's already alluded to this. These these angels, these uh, messengers mm. that Jesus is upholding. Who are these? You know, when Roger was with us on the Zoom, uh, Liz Warren asked the question about that. You know, are they uh, are they are they angels mm. or are they something else? And and um, this isn't to dismiss the the influence of the angelic in the church and it's and how the angelic realm relates to 
the life of the church, the worship of the church, the prayers of the church, ministering within the church, ministering on behalf of the church, bringing messages to the church. But I think as I've read this, I believe more and more that actually John is seeing the, the leaders, the, the apostles or yeah. the, the, those who are the, the, the human leaders within the church. And that whole thing of that Jesus upholds mm. leaderships in, in our churches. Mm. He, that, that the leadership of the church is in his hands. They're mm. important to him because the church is important to him and, and he's upholding mm. his leaders and he's then commissioning them to take this message and not just deliver it, but outwork it. Mm. And I believe that's what he's describing here. Um, but it, as I said, it doesn't diminish the importance of it. You know, John the Baptist, actually, in Matthew 11, verse 10, in the original uh, Greek is described as, as an angel. Yeah. But obviously, he's a messenger. He's yeah. a human messenger. And it can also refer to angels as well. So that's where the, the um, interpretation can become a little bit a little bit weird to, to work out which is which and predominantly it refers to angelic beings but I believe here it's referring to mm. the leaders and how Jesus is upholding yeah. his leadership and he's sending them to the church he's asking them to deliver the the message to the church and you mentioned well about the right hand of God yeah. you know Psalm 63 verse 8 says that his right hand upholds yeah, me that's right um, and he, he holds us up by his hands and the lampstands as well as already said refers to the churches and of course, Jesus says about the church, you know, you, that we, uh, oh, oh, there's, there's references, prophetic references to the church, being the light of the world, being a city mm -hmm. on a hill, that we're not to hide our light under a bushel, that mm -hmm. as he is the light, so we too are a light and a city on a hill that Jesus talks about in Matthew 5, 14 to 16. And we're to let our light shine out. But I love what you brought out of that, that Jesus is always yeah. trimming yeah, and yeah. Um, keeping the oil yeah. there and, yeah. and keeping the church um, healthy and strong, you know. As much as we appreciate leaders in churches, it's Jesus who upholds them. Yeah. And as much as we love the church, it's Jesus who's ministering to his yeah. church and keeping his church strong and on track. And then um, in uh, chapter 2, verse 9, and then also in chapter 3, verse 9, I don't think this is intentional, but there's this mysterious um, place called the Synagogue of Satan. The synagogue of Satan. It does sound pretty dark, doesn't it? <laughs> And as we know, synagogues were places where Jewish people could gather to read the scriptures and to talk about the scriptures together. They became a place of meeting. And particularly after being sent into exile, where they, they weren't able to gather at the temple anymore, they instituted synagogues, places of meeting for Jewish people anywhere in the world where they could meet on the Sabbath to talk about the word. Now, when Jesus is, uh, when Jesus is describing the synagogue of Satan, he's not referring to all synagogues. Just want to make that clear, okay? He's not saying that all places of Jewish worship and gathering are satanic. That's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is that in that um, part of Asia Minor, under the influence of the Roman Empire, there were synagogues, there were Jewish believers, and Jewish leaders in particular, who um, looked after synagogues and ran synagogues, who were in cahoots with Rome yeah. and the Roman Empire. And this was a big challenge because actually the Romans worshipped many gods, and they started to make Caesar gods as well. And to a Roman person, it's just another god. Throw yeah. him on the mix, you know, throw, throw him in. I'll worship Caesar, that's fine. Uh, but for Jewish people, they absolutely believed just in that, that Yahweh yeah. was the one God, but actually yeah. some had compromised on that mm. and they'd become so absorbed into Roman culture and, um, and God worship and politics that they essentially became synagogues mm. of Satan. And these were places that particularly persecuted the church because after mm. around AD 60, or certainly in the AD 60s, Nero, who was the Roman emperor at the time, he was a nightmare. 
he was a proper tinker, but Naughty he way. particularly persecuted the Christians um, and they became a scapegoat for him and, and the way that he'd mishandled his rule. And so in kind of collusion with the Roman Empire and the persecution that was coming from Rome, you also had Jewish persecution of believers. And Jesus is challenging that that's happening mm. in the midst of the Roman Empire. And then to continue the kind of satanic theme, we won't spend too long on it, <laughs> but in, in uh, Revelation 2, 13, to the message of the church in Pergamum, Jesus says, I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne. Now, does that mean that there was literally a throne to Satan? No. no. But Jesus was saying that Pergamum was such an immoral city that, and, and such a place of darkness that it, it had, they had handed, essentially, rule over to Satan. It was a place where major Greek gods were worshipped. It was a, a center for the worship of, of Zeus, Athena, um, Dionysus, and Asclepius. I didn't even know really? that was a Greek god. Wow. But Zeus predominantly. And they had made um, for Zeus a bull, a, a brazen bull that was hollowed out, that became a place of sacrifice for the people of Pergamum. But it also became a place of, of intense, um, terrible persecution. Yeah. And actually, if you read on in the letter in um, Revelation 2, it talks about following the teaching of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. We know that's all in Numbers. We can understand what happens here. And it was actually Balaam who caused God's people to, essentially, they, he couldn't curse them, so he caused them to be immoral instead. So they ended up cursing themselves. Mm -hmm. But he's saying that sexual sin, the Nicolaitans are beginning to, to teach this um, promiscuity and, and liberality of, of what it means to be a Christian. Um, but, but in that place, um, Antipas was um, martyred. He was uh, persecuted and he was martyred. And what happened was Antipas, as a believer who was saved from worshipping Zeus and other gods, was regarded as being um, untrustworthy. And instead of denying God, um, he was put inside this brazen bowl. A fire was lit underneath. And what would happen was the person was essentially burnt or, or boiled alive inside the belly of this brazen bull and the nostrils of the bull were formed in such a way that the screams from within the bull actually made the sound of, a, of an angry charging bull but and, and this was used for criminals it was used for animal sacrifices it was used to to kill people they considered uh, worthy of death and Antipas was this was such a person and there was incredible persecution but the the tradition has it that they couldn't hear him screaming they could only hear him praying and uh, his prayers were heard through the nostrils of the bull and it's a kind of that classic thing again, wherever the enemy tries to usurp God, this this re repeated mistake that he makes, God always ends up making sure his plan mm. comes to pass. And then um, in three, chapter three, verse one, there's this interesting description of the sevenfold spirit of God. Mm. And you can start to get a bit into heresy here if we think there are seven Holy Spirits. We know there's only one Holy, Holy Spirit. Yeah. And as you mentioned at the beginning, Seven is a number of completeness, perfection, wholeness, fullness. He's the one, the only, the complete, the utter. You can't add to him. He's perfect. He's, he's full. And also, when we look at some of the ways that the Holy Spirit functions, if you get a chance to go back to Isaiah 11, verses 2 and 3, there's this sevenfold description of the Holy yeah. Spirit on Jesus Christ, that he's the Spirit of the Lord. It says, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. That's number one. He's the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. There's this sevenfold ministry of the spirit of what he brings and the completeness of what he brings. In Romans, when we talk about the grace gifts, 
There are seven gifts, the gift that the Holy Spirit gives of prophecy, of serving, of teaching, encouragement, generosity, leadership, and showing kindness or showing mercy to others. Again, seven. And, and in 1 Corinthians verse 12, Paul makes it clear there are many gifts, but only one spirit who gives it. And he's the complete, the whole, the perfect Holy Spirit. Nice. The last little description I want us to look at before we, we end this time and give you one other thing to, to think about and talk about is the key of David. Have you been looking after it for your dad? Or? I've been trying my best. Yeah, yeah. good, thanks. Um, in, uh, in Revelation 3 verse 7, to the letter to the church um, in Philadelphia, it says, this is the message from the one who is holy and true, the one who has the key of David. What do we know about David? We know that he was the king. He was king. The, the king of the greatest kingdom. He was a man after God's own heart. We also know that in Isaiah 22, 22, there's a, this description. He says, I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. What he opens, no one will shut. And what he shuts, no one will open. And it's the same description that Jesus has here. He says, I know all the things you do, verse 8 of Revelation 3. And I have opened a door to you that no one can close. There's this authority that Jesus has to mm. open things that cannot be closed again and to lock things that cannot be locked again. Now that can apply to so many different things. His work is perfect. Mm. The salvation that he's produced, he's opened a door into the kingdom that no one can shut. The enemy can't shut it, we can't shut it. He's opened a door to have a relationship with the Father. He's closed doors. If you've given your life to Jesus, he's closed the door on your past and, and you're free now to live, set free from the things that might have tried to creep back to you, that door is locked on your past and passing through the waters. Baptism is part of that process. And also we know that as the church, we are called to bind and to loose, to lock and to open. And when Jesus talks about the church, he only talks about the church twice, once in Matthew 16, once in Matthew 18. He says that one of the, one of the things the church will have is the authority to bind and to yeah. loose, or the, bind, the, the, the authority, I believe, to lock and to open, and what are we doing? We're opening the blessing of heaven, the power of heaven, the life of heaven, and we're locking up the influence and the attack and, and the, the, uh, the, the movement, if you like, of the enemy. Mm. We're locking the door on the enemy and we're opening the doors of heaven. We're, we're binding and we're loosing. Mm. And so Jesus has that power, Jesus has that authority. He has the key, no one else has it. And we can also now benefit because we've been seated with him in heavenly places. The resources of the kingdom of heaven are available to us, just as the resources of the kingdom of Israel were available to David and to those that he trusted. So, so just that's a, a wonderful thought as well about the authority that we have mm. um, because of Jesus and, and certainly talks about the authority that Jesus has. So our last thing to, to ask you to think about, um, Will described... Jesus in the vision in Revelation 1, and I hope that was helpful in just thinking about which aspects of him you most um, appreciate at this time. But what I would love first for you to talk about next or think about next is, do we think about spiritual things enough? Mm. Because these letters are packed with spiritual imagery and yeah. truth. Do we yeah. think about them enough? Do we think enough about, and you did this fantastically, Jesus' direct involvement in an interest in our church? Yeah. You know, he is intimately invested and involved. Do we think about that? How much work Jesus is doing to, to build his church? Are we, do we think enough about the work of the Holy Spirit? Do we think enough about the influence of the angelic? Do we think enough in the right way about the influence of the enemy mm. and those spiritual forces, those heavenly principalities and powers that are at work, an enemy who wants to distract or derail or, or even destroy us? Are we conscious about those things enough? 
and maybe to talk about some of the things that you think it would be helpful for us to think about more. Mm. And then also to say, and, and if we do think about these more, how that will help me as an individual, us as a family, us as a church, how that will help us if we are more spiritually minded about Jesus and his work, the Holy Spirit, the angelic, and mm. everything else in the mix there. So we hope that's been helpful. Yeah. Um, we've got some, we're gonna do Named and Shamed? Yeah, I think we talked part three um, of things that make you go, mm, was gonna be some, th something around those that are named and shamed in the yeah. Revelation letters, the, the Nicolaitans and, and Jezebel, yeah. and probably some, something else in, in the mix there, but who are they? What does it mean? Why does that matter to us today? Mm. What's it all about? So we'll perhaps pick that up next time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I hope this has been really helpful. Um, I was just reminded of that. I can't even remember where the verse is, unfortunately, but it's about um, be faithful with the revelation that you've received. And I think uh, I think about that with this. And and as you look into here, you you get much more of a revelation of who Jesus is. Yeah, that's the most And I think for me to be faithful with that just like the Bereans were faithful to go back into the scriptures and not just take what they've heard for granted, but, but mm. look at it for themselves and see those threads running through the word and really dive in and get a full understanding of what Jesus is trying to say to us and show us of himself. Um, I would just love for that to be the outcome of, yeah. of what we're talking about today, that we're faithful with, with what we've seen and heard and that we see Jesus more clearly than ever before. So revelation of Jesus, that's the primary thing that, yeah. that we have in this wonderful letter. Thanks so much for Great. watching.